Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Leviticus chapter 4, as I turn on this mic. We are glad that you're with us today. We're not going to spend a great deal of time in Leviticus, but we will bounce around perhaps a little bit in it, as well as a few other places. When I was in college attending Washburn University, I took an American history course from a professor who was considered to be an expert in his field in frontier American history, Dr. Bill Danker. Well, there was a college student at a neighboring university, a small college like Washburn, nearby in Missouri that someone decided that he wanted to be a history major and was going to write on some aspect of frontier American history. The professor, not knowing much about frontier American history, but having a good friend, Dr. Bill Danker, cross the border at Washburn University, he said, I'll just call him and see if he will give me his thoughts. And so he sends the paper to Dr. Danker, and Dr. Danker merely writes on this at the end of it, says, this is an excellent paper, just like it was when I wrote it. Surprise, surprise. Plagiarism. We know that it's wrong. We know that people get in trouble for it. But people still do it. For this young man, I don't know what the ramifications were for him. It probably could have meant that he didn't graduate since he would have had to go back and write another paper. He may have failed that class. He could have been expelled from the university. I don't know what happened to him ultimately. But I do know one thing that his... Pathway was hit a major road bump. If he was kicked out of the university, he would have had to then apply to another university and would have had to start at least taking another year's worth of classes, probably, to complete his degree from that university. So he made a mess of things. And that's what sin does. When we sin, we make a mess of life. It causes huge problems. It requires a great deal to clean up. The amount of work required to clean up sin is more than what you and I can comprehend. We know it's too much for us to handle because Scripture tells us that. We cannot clean up our sin problem. Last Sunday I announced that during this series that we're going to look at the major sacrifices of Leviticus. There are three major sin sacrifices that deal with forgiveness or atonement, purification from sin. The sin offering, chapter 4, the trespass offering, the great day of atonement sacrifice of Leviticus chapter 14. There are three worship sacrifices that we'll deal with later on in the series. But today we're going to look again at Leviticus chapter 4 because we want to see a pattern as we go back. First of all, we're going to look at the original sacrifice. We're going to look into the reality of it, of Christ then, and see what our responsibility or our response should be. And that's what we're going to do this morning with the sin offering. We're going to go into it, try to unpack it a little bit, describe what was involved in the actual offering at the tabernacle when the offering was brought to the priest at the tent of meeting. So Leviticus chapter 4 says... The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally 
in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, if he does any of them, it's the anointed priest. And then what we see here, if it's the anointed priest, it's a certain sacrifice. He is to offer a bull from the herd without blemish for a sin offering. If it is someone else, he doesn't have to bring a bull. He can bring a lesser animal, maybe a goat, a male goat, a female goat. It goes on and on down to even the poorest of the poor has still an offering to bring. But I want us to look at an animal sacrifice. We'll just say it's a goat. The scenario here is that this is something that dealt with man's relationship with God. He violated one of the first of the five commandments in all likelihood. It was unintentional, not willful. Later on, it describes a high-handed sin. And high-handed could be something that is done without any type of thought. You know, just saying, I don't care what God said. I'm doing it anyway. There is no connection to what that man is doing. This sin sacrifice wouldn't cover that. This one is for the one that is unintentional. It's done in ignorance. A sin that a person committed because he didn't realize perhaps his actions were sinful. It may be that... He committed an act of idolatry in some fashion without realizing it was an idolatrous act. Maybe it was something as simple as going out one morning, minding his flock. He gets up in the morning and he wants to move the herd along, the flock along, and he notices one of his lambs, one of his goats is laying down, hasn't moved, so he goes over and he reaches down to touch it to get it up and he realizes it's dead. Now he's committed a sin. He's unclean. Because he touched an unclean animal. And maybe he walked over a tomb, a burial place for someone. He's unclean. Maybe he hit his thumb with a hammer and cursed. Took the name of the Lord in vain. I don't know what the sin was, but now he's got a problem. He didn't mean to do it. He just did it. It was a reaction in some fashion to something. And now he's got a problem that he's no longer in fellowship with God. He's broken that relationship. Now, the animal that's going to be offered can't be just any animal. You can't go out into the wilderness and catch a wild goat and bring that goat in and have it offered because it's wild. It has to be one of your own flock, one of your own herd because it has to be a tame animal. Probably it's an animal that you have some type of affection for because you've grown it up from a from birth. You've watched over it and taken care of it. Maybe your children have played with it. Well, this animal is going to pay the price for your sin. Now, it's not going to be just any old goat or lamb. It's going to be one that is unblemished. It is spotless. It can't be the one that got bit by on the leg by a coyote or a wolf. And you rescued it, but now it's kind of got a limp. It can't be that one because that one is not perfect. You see, the animal has to be symbolically perfect, not having any blemish. It can't be scratched up, scraped up, or damaged in any way. And so you bring the animal now to the tent of meeting. And there's going to be a priest there that's going to take a very close look at that animal to see if it in fact is perfect without any blemish. Doesn't have any defect. So it has to be an animal that is of your own. 
a tame animal without blemish, symbolizing perfection. And once you've reached that point, here the ritual begins. You bring the animal to the doorway of the tent of meeting, and you have to stop. You don't go inside the tent because, well, you've broken fellowship with God. Your sin has separated you from God. You're no longer in a covenantal relationship with him. So your part of the sacrifice is now going to take place outside the tent. You present the animal at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So picture this in mind. There's you, the goat, and the priest. You've committed a sin. We'll talk more about that in a moment. You're going to lay your hands on the head of that animal. I wish we had, this would be great if we had PowerPoint, where we could project a picture of this. But imagine yourself with your goat, perfect. You've raised it up from a babe, and now you take that to the doorway of the tent of meeting and you lay your hands on it. And this is the part where the animal becomes personal. Because you're transferring your sin to that animal. You're just laying it there, and in your mind, your sin leaves your body and goes into that animal. And then the next point, as you do this, you're going to acknowledge what your sin is. That this animal is going to pay the, pay the price for your sin. And then the knife comes out. And here's where we don't like Leviticus too much. Here comes the knife out. The priest is probably holding the lower part of the animal so it can't squirm and get away. But you take the knife. Not the priest. You take the knife. You hold its head with one hand and then you cut its throat with the other with that knife. And now you're done. You don't have anything more to do. But I guarantee you, when you cut that animal's throat, you got blood on your hands. Now the priest takes over at this point. The priest has some type of a container, don't know exactly what it was. Uh, I'm told by one that it had probably a cone-shaped point on it so that it couldn't fall over. As they collect the blood, I saw a picture of one, probably more modern-day reenactment of it. It was a cup on a long handle where the priest would be capturing the blood to pour it out. The priest takes the blood and he goes into the tent of meetings, into the tent of meeting. And the very first place it's sprinkled is in front of the veil. And that veil is the partition inside that separates the tent of meeting, the holy place, from the holy of holies. Some is sprinkled there. And while he's in there, there's an altar called the altar of incense. And then the rest of the, it's sprinkled on that altar and the rest is placed at the base of the altar, the burnt offering. And now the priest is done with the offering of the blood, but he's not finished with the sacrifice yet. The animal is skinned, it's cut open, and what is removed is and offered is the fat and the kidneys. The priest that is officiating takes that fat from the animal, removes the kidneys, and then offers it on the altar of burnt offering, and it's offered up to the Lord in what is referred to in the Bible as a fragrant aroma, a sweet savor. Why? Not sure. But that's what God calls it. That's what he wanted. Now the rest of the animal, the skin, everything else that's left over is taken outside the camp to a clean place. It's burnt, consumed with fire. Now as you think about that for a moment, that's the mess that your sin has created. 
what is required to take care of the sin that that mess created. You had to take that animal, perfect, unblemished, spotless, out of your flock, one that you raised, one that you had a vested interest in, and now you have to kill it. When we trespass against God, that's what it requires. That's only symbolic here because in a moment we're going to look at the reality of Christ. But that's what our Jewish brethren had to do years ago. But before we get to the reality which is in Christ, we're going to stay here for just a moment with this part of the sacrifice. To imagine what's going on in all of this. So I want you to put yourself in the story, if you will. And imagine what must have been taking place. But imagine, it's kind of like it is a little bit today. I don't know about you, but it's a little warm in here. It's getting warmer now that it's mid-March. We can still have some cool days, but we know that with March comes April and April and March. April and May are pretty nice, but we'll get some 80, 90 degree days. And I don't know if you've ever been around livestock. I have. Grew up in the country. But when it's hot in the late spring, early summer, and just imagine, you've got millions of people that live in Israel, and that's what they're all doing. At various times, we have several people coming and bringing a sin offering. Well, if you have a cow that dies in the morning, I can guarantee you on a 90, 95 degree day in the summers of Kansas, by noon, it's going to be about doubled in size. And it's not going to smell very well. And that's what it's going to be like around here. With all of the blood, all of this dismemberment, all that's going on. Then the smell of the burning flesh, the disposing of the hide. All of this is going to have an aroma. I wouldn't call it a fragrant aroma. I would call it something else. But you get the picture. It's not going to smell very well. But, of course, this is all shadow. This is what's going on. The ritual of the shadow is proven in the reality of Christ. And so as we leave Leviticus for a moment, we jump into Romans chapter 8. Now, Paul has spent his time in Romans establishing that man is justified by faith. That man was lost in sin and couldn't do anything about it, but God did. He gave us his son, that we're justified by faith in Christ. In chapter 7, he shows this tension between the law, the legalism that's going on. But in chapter 8, reading from the New American Standard, because I like the way it phrases it better, Paul wrote, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. So the reality is clear. God sent his son to become sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul wrote, For our sake he made him who knew no sin... To be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God put our sin on him. Jesus did not know sin, but he became sin. Now let's go back for a moment, just to see what Christ is fulfilling in this. The first thing we noticed was that the animal had to be perfect, unblemished, spotless. 
And this, there was Jesus who knew no sin. No guile was found in his mouth. Of course, Paul said he knew no sin. Very clear in that. But he became sin. He was free from blemish, and that made him a worthy offering to God. Another thing about Christ is that he was not a wild animal. He was not dragged to a cross. He went there willingly. In Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the ultimate separation from God that he'd never experienced, he prayed this prayer. Let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. He went to the cross willingly, carrying his cross to fulfill God's purpose in human history. And another thing that we noticed is that it was sinners that condemned him to death. They were the ones who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And the process was started, it was no accident. But it had to take place for you and me. We had to be willing, and we have to be willing to agree with that. The fact that it happened for our sins. And of course, in his death on the cross, his scourging, Jesus shed an enormous amount of blood. But there's no question that Jesus sent, that, that Jesus shed an enormous amount of blood. Much like it would have been with a sacrificial animal for the sin offering. You think about all of the blood that Jesus shed. The crown of thorns that was placed on his head. The reed that they down that would be piercing his skin and cutting it open. The Garden of Eden and Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood because of the stress. And then there's the scourging. We're never going to get a good picture. Maybe Mel Gibson came pretty close to getting a good picture of the scourging in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, but probably still left a lot of things open. Here's what it would have been like. This Roman scourge was straps of leather tied together, pieces of rock and glass and metal in the ends of them. And the Romans knew exactly how to inflict the greatest amount of pain and punishment in that scourging. And so, just like you take a wet towel when you're in the locker room and you snap it, there's a certain art to that. Because if you do it too soon, it goes flat, doesn't do anything. But if you cut it just right... There will be a loud pop, and if that's against your skin, you're doing it, somebody's done it to you, it's going to hurt. Well, that Roman scourge was such that they would just kind of flick their wrists, and when those pieces of glass and metal cut, cut the body, it would rip chunks of flesh away. They were good at it. Some of them probably enjoyed it because these were common thugs, criminals that deserved every bit of this. And so they wanted to inflict as much pain on them as possible. Maybe even some of them were sadistic. But the scourging was not limited only to the back. Because those straps would come around to the front as well. And it would tear open the flesh there. And so it would tear it open and it would cause a lot of blood that would be shed. And that's before he even got to the hill of Calvary. Before he was nailed to the cross. So now he's been scourged. He's carrying his cross. He's lost the strength to do that. Somebody is forced to help him. 
Then they take them, that ripped up back, lay them down on the cross, a rough hewn cross, not a nice, smooth, planed one. And then come the nails, and they go through his hands, his wrists, through the nerves, the blood vessels that are there. Blood was shed. And then, of course, after he's died, a Roman soldier pierces his heart with a spear. That's the point, and we could go on and on, and it's good to see the vividness of the picture of what Jesus really went through, because that sets us in mind as to what sin really does. Because that should have been you and I on the cross. The bottom line is that the sin offering was merely a shadow of the atoning sacrifice for Christ. Well, for a moment, let's look at a couple of views from the responses from different vantage points. First of all, I want us to look at the idea of a sinner who's not yet come to Jesus. Someone who has yet to obey the gospel. The way a lost soul today becomes a Christian is foreshadowed by the sinner in his presentation of the sacrifice offering outside the tabernacle. You see the shadow and the idea of being outside of the covenant relationship that we're on the outside looking in, wanting in. That's the relationship with God and lost people. Under the old system, he had to go through that ritual at the door. We had to stop right there. And to be saved from our sinful state, our sins have to be acknowledged. We have to confess the fact that we're a sinner. Have to acknowledge that confession that comes through the faith that we make when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. That we need him to take away sin. And then, of course, to be saved, we have to make contact with the blood of Christ. Just like the sinner of the old system. In the center of the old system, the sinner had to lay his hand on the head of the sacrifice and try that, transfer that sin. And that's what takes place at baptism. We contact the sacrifice, the blood of Christ, where sin is taken away from us. And that's the shadow. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Colossians chapter 2, as we'll be there momentarily. At the point when the animal was slain, they killed the animal... Now the priest is the one who takes over. So you really have to trust your priest. Because he's the one that's going to make intercession for you. He is the one that is going to be doing the work thus out. You have done your part. You have done your part. Let me get back to the right page here. I lost, they fell over. You've done your part. Now I've lost my place. God takes over. When we're buried with Christ in baptism, God takes over. Just like the sinner trusting the priest, we have to trust God to do the rest. In Colossians chapter 2... Paul would say this. In chapter 2, verses 12 and following. No, verses 9, we'll pick it up there. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of who is head of rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, all of our trespasses. It's easy to just go to this verse and try to use it to prove that baptism is by immersion, buried with Christ, it's in there, and we know that to be the, the case. But just as the, tr- the sinner in Leviticus chapters 4 and 5 in the sin offering had to trust to take the priest to take care of the rest of it, we have to trust God to take care of it. So what's our understanding of the sin offering? What, why, how should it inspire us today? Because we should see the depth of what God went to. We need to be reminded that sin is a messy thing. It's easy to trivialize sin and just shake it off as though it's nothing. But I'm glad that we live in a time where we don't have to offer those animals. To take that animal that we've raised and lay my hands on it, hold it down so it can't get away as I precisely take a sharp knife and cut its throat. Getting blood on my hands and seeing the blood spewed out everywhere and seeing it gathered and now trusting someone else. It's just like me. We need to be reminded about how much Jesus did for us, taking our sin problem away from us. Not only did his blood satisfy God and eliminate the need for a sacrifice, another sacrifice because I sinned another day, his cleansing is ongoing, it's continual. We don't have to bounce back and forth between a covenant relationship with God day in and day out. Because his sacrifice was good for all times. Continual cleansing. And so we read about that in places like 1 John chapter 1. There's no darkness in God, we know that. But we also know that if we're walking in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so we can be grateful. But sometimes, on this side of the cross, we don't see and understand the shadow that was there that was pointed to Jesus all along. And so we have to study the shadow so we get an idea of just how messy it took to take care of sin. And as we read in Leviticus and we see the priest shall make atonement and his sins shall be forgiven, that was because the sinner coming in faith offered what God said to offer. The priest in faith, following what God said to do with the offering, did it. I'm trusting God for forgiveness. I'm trusting the priest to do his work as he mediates between me and God. We have to study the shadow so that maybe we'll get a glimpse of what the reality in Christ is like. So as this series, read Leviticus chapters 4 and 5. Read Leviticus chapter 16. Take it out, look at it. Put yourself into the story of it. And I know the reason we don't like Leviticus, not only is it because it's detailed, it's because it's bloody. It's messy, and we think about those poor little animals. Yeah? But they were all done to point us to Christ, who would give us forgiveness. So that God might be the just in forgiving those under the law, and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. You know, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you are on the outside waiting to come in to a covenant relationship with God or not. 
But God does. His plea is come and find salvation in Christ. Believe that Jesus is my son. That he gave his life for you. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Confess his name before men. Be buried with him in the waters of baptism. That you might be united with him in the likeness of his death to be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That you might be clothed with Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I don't know where you are. But I do know that the shadow is pointing to the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice. And I know that we can all be grateful for that. But you know what you need in Christ. And if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to Jesus while we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.